welcome to the Future of Application Security, a podcast for ambitious leaders who want to build a modern and effective AppSec program. Doing application security right is really hard. Now I'm going to help you build a better future of AppSec at your company by curating the lessons from the leaders. I'm your host, Harshal Parikh, CEO of Tromso. And without further ado, let's get into it. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the future of AppSec. Our guest today is Alan Swanpool. And currently, Alan is a principal security architect at Druva. Alan, welcome to the show. Hey, Herschel, how's it going today? It's going fantastic. And I am super excited to have you here. If you're a regular listener to this podcast, you already know that I like bringing people who come from non-security backgrounds, but are now doing a lot of amazing work within the space of security. And Alan, I would love to hear a little bit about your background. Where did you start your career in uh, just really briefly? And how did you get into security? Yeah, sure. So I'm one of those people that fit into your non-traditional mold. I hail more from the infrastructure side of things where I was an infrastructure engineer for many years and fell into security by starting to build security products. And that just kind of hit the spotlight for me on where there's a big need for work to be continued. And also as DevOps then started forming, how we can take DevOps and implement security in DevOps, effectively building DevSecOps. Right. And you spent a lot of time with migrating legacy infrastructure, re-architecting them to be Kubernetes and cloud-native. So is that where the intersection with security came in? Yes, definitely. Especially with the advent of cloud, a lot of the traditional methods, traditional firewalls, the traditional controls couldn't necessarily be adjusted to cloud on day one. And you needed to be more aware of how the cloud was built and how the cloud was working to be able to translate those models more effectively. Right. So the one thing that I'm always fascinated about is you were doing you know, large-scale infrastructure, Kubernetes environment, architecting, implementation. What got you interested in security? The automation side of it was really lacking in my personal view. You always find that when you're working with other security teams that you've got all of these policies, all of these procedures, and sometimes if you look at an org and you interpret it, it might feel like a lot of red tape that you need to go through to get something from your laptop into production. And this was becoming, in that sense, a very big blocker. So one of the things that really interested me has always been, how do we take these fast-moving, agile worlds and apply them to security that security can move forward at the same speed as your application development without becoming an inhibitor to the organization. Right. So, okay, so let me get this straight. So you you were seeing that, okay, all of these other sides of the business from infrastructure and development, they were already automated, they were moving faster, and you 
pointed out to those bunch of security people and said, "Hey guys, you need to do better." Is that is that why you joined Basically, for a low security to help them out? <laughs> Basically, yeah. <laughs> that's that's amazing. I love it. So so tell me a little bit more about that. So you, I know you're a big fan of automation. I know you're uh, you've got a ton of experience doing that on on the other sides of the world. Uh, what about security? Like, what are the things that you've seen that can be automated, but most people are not doing that automation in security? You know, the one thing that really pains me, and I see this almost on a day-to-day basis, is you go out as an org and you hire a bunch of security engineers. And these are intelligent people. These are well-trained people, you know, CISSP trained, OSCP trained. And what do you have them do? You have them sitting and creating Jira tickets. And in my mind, this is such a waste of intelligent and useful resources that we really need to enable these highly skilled engineers to be able to use their time more effectively. And the only way to do that is through automation. Now, yes, maybe these security engineers are skilled enough to to do more work, but they might not necessarily have the infrastructure skills or to automate the work that they're doing. And that's kind of where I come in and I I take a look and I look at how do I make you take this job that takes you half an hour every day to go through these bunch of Jira tickets and automate that so that's a five-minute process. Right. So the challenge that most people run into is not debating whether automation is the right choice or not. I'm pretty sure everyone would agree that we should automate as much as possible. The, the challenge is, in my opinion, twofold, which is a lot of the security teams don't have the right skill set or the bandwidth to invest in automation. And the second piece is there's just so much to automate. Like, how do you prioritize that, right? So like, let me ask you the first question first, which is, if you look at a typical security team that doesn't have a lot of people, a lot of resources, how do you get that automation mindset? Like, do, do you suggest, you know, hiring for people dedicated to this? Or do you suggest training folks existing in the team to, you know, learn some of those automation things? Or what's your what's your suggestion there? Yeah, I, I love the teaching method because teaching someone how to automate gives you essentially two things. Number one, they start to think more independently, which is basically the crux of the problem. Like if they can think about how they can automate their own workflow and in the DevOps world, there's this mentality of you're essentially working yourself out of your own job through automation. And if we start looking at applying that to security engineers and in the security skill set, it's not that you're actually going to run out of a job. It's that you can just accomplish so much more in the eight hours of a day that you spend in front working with the tools that you have. So, you know, where you maybe spend one day a week just triaging incidents, it's something that's automated and just the highlights of those incidents is something you can go through in 15, 20 minutes. Right. And I I think it's also getting much more easier with the very easy access to cloud environments. Like it's so much easier now to just, you know, write a Lambda function or spin up a, a container and just get it deployed in AWS super quickly. Right. So now the access to build that automation along with, you know, open source frameworks that are available combined with 
the ease of access to cloud platforms is it's much more easier to build those automation pieces in place. So the next question comes into the picture, which is like, okay, great. Now we have some people who can do some sort of automation within the security team. How do you find time and resources to do that? Because as we know, most security teams are not fully staffed. They always are looking for more people. So how do you think about prioritizing automation versus running after you know fires that are just burning every day? With the smaller teams, and yes, this doesn't necessarily scale very well outside of the org, but with a smaller team, you know, it's very easy for me to go to a person and say, let's, let's do a shadow session. I want to see what you're doing, what your tasks are on a given day. What's your highest barrier of issues that you feel is taking up the most amount of time that you wish you could get rid of your plate so that you could get freed up to do something else? And that's basically where I start. You know, for someone that's a project manager, it might be automating your 15-day SLA responses. For someone that's an incident response agent, it might be automating the aggregation of different tools so that you can have a single pane of glass view on what your different tools are accomplishing, you know, your software composition analysis, your vulnerability assessment. All of these are different tools. So now you've got 10, 15 dashboards to log into and you really just want to overview to see what's actually going on. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, I, th- I really like that tactical approach of like, look into what exactly do you do on a day-to-day basis? Like just let's do an analysis of what can we automate out of that. And I think that might be a much better approach as compared to looking at the future ideal state and say, hey, let's automate this other thing that you may or may not be spending a lot of time on. So looking at what the team does on a day-to-day basis and picking those tasks for automation makes a lot of sense. I think one of the challenges that we ran into in our previous lives was that in a smaller team, I personally had one engineer who was working on automation. But after a point when that person left, that knowledge went with that person. So a lot of times I've seen that happen again and again at several different companies, especially in smaller teams where, you know, one or two individuals are focused on writing automation. And as soon as they leave, the whole thing just falls apart because it's not maintained and it's not documented correctly. And there's not enough resiliency in the knowledge within the team as well. Yeah. And again, this is where that handholding for at least or a direct one-on-one approach really helps because you're teaching this person how they can think about automation and work to enable that engineer to consider their own automation stories as well. Now, I'm not the only one who wants to build this utopia. This utopia has to be something that everybody wants to build. And that's why it's different for every organization. And it's different for every engineer that you're going to work with because each of these engineers have a different thing that they want to have automated that they don't want to deal with in their lives. Right, right, right. So let's switch gears a little bit and and carrying the theme of automation. You know, you came from the infrastructure as code and infrastructure automation background. Are there any lessons that you may want to share, or maybe not lessons, but things around security implications? Because if you're managing your infrastructure in, in a legacy environment versus managing everything in a cloud-native infrastructure as code world, what are some of the uh, security implications that are interesting from your perspective, especially since you're coming from an infrastructure background? Yeah, I, the thing that strikes me the most 
is how people seem to either forget or ignore the basics. And by this, I mean, just because you can now run your API on a Docker container in a Kubernetes cluster does not imply that it's more secure than when it was running on a piece of tin sitting in a rack in a hardware, you know. There's still tin that's managing, that's underneath the hood that's basically holding the container, the Kubernetes environment. So are you making sure that your hardware is still hardened OSs? Are you making sure that if you're using a hypervisor, that your hypervisor access is hardened, that your undercloud or overcloud networks are secure and isolated? Some of these topics that are really almost so commonplace today sometimes almost seem to be forgotten and left behind. Right, right. Yeah, and one of the common themes that I've seen is how security teams are still stuck sort of in the legacy mindset. So I've seen so many people, you know, they're operating in a Kubernetes native environment, but they still, you know, run network scans every day within their environment. And before they know, they have hundreds of thousands of issues that they need to resolve. But really, if you really think about it in a cloud native environment that's managed with infrastructure as code, like it's not, it's mostly immutable infrastructure where you don't really need thousands and thousands of items to go after. You need to go chase the underlying base images or the golden images or the artifacts that are stored in the registry to really fix the problem. But for some reason, a lot of the uh, the security teams still function in, in the way of, I'm going to detect things in production environment. I'm going to give you a list of thousands of IP addresses. So uh, I don't know if you've seen that as well or it's um, it just me. Yeah, no, I've, I've definitely seen that. And you know, unfortunately, I think that's probably going to be the hardest barrier to break. The, the tooling that exists doesn't necessarily support, you know, immutable infrastructure. When I'm scanning a service, it's still scanning an IP address. There's no real tool that says, oh, this is actually a pod. And looking at your Kubernetes infrastructure, you know, this is the container or this is the host or that it's running on or, you know, goes down a more cloud native route of identifying what you're actually scanning. And I think a lot of these challenges are just with the tools that's available. And one of the areas where security is still today lagging is not necessarily having something that's cloud native to scan and also personally i don't i don't sign up to something should be scanned in a production environment if you've got insecurities in your production environment it's way too late yeah so so then let me ask you this now if you are the person or the team that's managing the cloud environment the production infrastructure and i as a security person my job is to find out what my bugs are what my vulnerabilities are non compliance things within the environment various different things right so how should i work with you like is there a particular time or is it a is there a particular system where i should communicate security information to you that makes your job much easier as an infrastructure architect yes i think 
the shift left mentality definitely needs to apply. And this needs to be as close to the time of creation as humanly possible. You know, security should in all form and practice be part of doing the code review as you're building out your infrastructure as code templates, whether you're using Terraform or Ansible or CloudFormation or whatever tooling you're using to build out your infrastructure. I strongly think that if you can emulate your environment ahead of the actual creation of it, it leads to a higher success rate in the security automation because then you can also track your changes through your code review cycle. But again, this also means that there's a change required from the security environment that you need a lot more developer-trained security engineers then you actually need security trained engineers. So, you know, you almost need to shift how your engineers are looking at the problem and they need to be able to communicate to the developers and the cloud engineers on those levels for the environment enablement. Right. So tell me a little bit more detail about it, right? So let's say, you know, I'm the security team, right? And I have the the shiny new tool that does Terraform scans and, uh, you know, Kubernetes scans, and I can integrate that with GitHub and it will look at my code and it will flag all the findings. But I am the security team. I'm not the one writing all this, all the code. So that's an inherent challenge, right? Because the security team who owns these tools and assessment systems, they are not writing the actual code, but the people who are writing this code, who are building out this infrastructure, they might not even know that these systems of security assessments exist. And if you are writing your own infrastructure in a, in a relatively larger organization, there's no central chokehold. There's no central point of funneling everything through this one single piece. So how do you bridge those two things together where security owns the security tools and the other teams across the organization are writing their own infrastructure? Like, How do you connect those two things together? So most of these tools that exist allow you to implement some form of tagging in it. So once you've identified the area or the team that you're you're working with, you could either go and tag these repos through your CI/CD pipeline. So certain tags from your repo gets published into your cloud environment. So you know who the owner is or the who, who the owning team is. And I'm, I'm saying this from a security point of view. So the security always know, hey, this is the team that's building this. This is the owner or the team manager potentially have an email alias in there. And, and that way, when you're looking at it from a cloud environment, you immediately know who to contact, how to get hold of them, and potentially even what repo and where this repo is located, where this infrastructure gets built from. Yeah, I love that idea of having the organization tag assets and artifacts so there's traceability and there's attribution to who built what. I guess the other question is, if you as a security team is running all these tools and consuming and seeing all these alerts, the developers that are writing this infrastructure, they probably don't even know that these things exist, right? So how do you bring these right set of information in front of the developers who are actually building out this infrastructure, writing the code? Again, you, from a security point of view, you have to work with the, your developers and the development teams constantly 
The product managers of these teams know who the security engineers are. Within the teams, you may have some security champions, again, working closely with the rest of the security team, or, or even developers who've shown an interest in uh, leaning towards the more secure side of adopting a more secure style in the actual team. All of these projects, all of these programs need to be existent and enabled within your org. Right. So what I'm hearing is the fundamental piece is to establish those relationships with the different dev teams, whether it's uh, with the engineering leadership or building out a security champions program or identifying people, engineers, developers who are passionate about security. So finding out who your points of context are, establishing those relationships. So there is a mutually beneficial relationship between security and engineering. I think that's that's what I'm getting out of it. Yes, yes, definitely. You know, there's two ways you can do this. Culturally, cultural adoption is always the easiest way. So if you drive the right culture, this is definitely the preferred way for adoption. You're going to get a lot higher resistance if you try and shove it down someone's throat and make it a thou shalt governance rule. You know, thou shalt have thine container scanned is the 11th law of said org does not really scale very well with engineers, but with the right culture and the right adoption and having these programs in place, working with the teams, enables the teams to think of security as an enabler and not an inhibitor. Yeah. One story I can share is in, in one of my previous roles, I was talking to one of the developers, dev leads, and I was asking him like, hey, why why does the team not look at all these security things that we that we spend so much time and effort in finding out and he said, my team doesn't even know that these things exist, right? They have a certain way of looking at their test results, the bugs from a quality, performance, reliability perspective. They have a certain set of tooling that they use on a day-to-day -day basis. But if security alerts live in a completely siloed different system, they're not going to go and look for it. So what we did as an experiment was we integrated security tools and just showing them the results early on in their own system. So running security tests as a part of Jenkins uh, pipelines, running it as a part of your GitHub pull request checks, and just showing that visibility brought about quite a bit of change within the developers because now they could see that, hey, these are the things that maybe we should fix. Now, granted that there's no world that where they fixed every single thing. There were still you know discussions and debates about it, but at least it got security front and center into what they look at on a day-to-day -day basis and what they think about, what they care about. So that was one very simple trick for us to make awareness, drive awareness about security. Yeah, that definitely works and that definitely scales very well. I, I think the one big challenge from that is there's not just one tool to rule them all anymore. You know, you've got SCI, you've got SAST, you've got DAST, you've got ISD, you've got dependency license scanning. You've, you know, this can be one tool, it can be three tools, it can be five tools. So it's becoming more and more complex to say, okay, well, these are the five or six dashboards that you need to go to to look at how your tool's performing. And again, this is where you're losing the interest. So the real benefit is in being able to have this integration, like you say, and present all of these findings in a single pane of glass. Right. And prioritized based on what's relevant to the business, right? So a policy-driven prioritization. Exactly. Yeah.
That's exactly what we are building at Tromso, by the way. Um, <laughs> uh, so I know you're uh, you're also very interested and passionate about this open source project called Security Scorecard by OpenSSF. Tell yes. me a little bit more about that project. Sure. So uh, again, if we just take a step back to what I just said a minute ago, now you've got all of these tools and all of these tools are raising different risks. Now, in each of these tools, any one of these risks can potentially be a circuit breaker to your build. So let's take software composition analysis. Let's say there's a new finding of a high vulnerability in one of your dependencies. On its own, it could now break your build as a circuit breaker. And whether it should or should not break your build is a part of your business policy that you want to exercise. But how do we quantify this risk along with the SAS scan or the DAST scan or the infrastructure testing or the end-to-end testing? How do we build a full card that says, for this specific project, these are all of my risks and give me an aggregated score And I'd rather then say, okay, let's make the circuit breaker decision on the aggregated score than on just a single item being flagged as a potential high risk. And again, this is where I think something like what is more commonly known as the Google Scorecard project comes in, is that it advocates for these types of decisions where you have more of an aggregate scoring solution as an overall instead of just a singular item having a make or break or circuit breaker decision within your CI-CD pipeline. Right. And I, and I love the idea that when you define those different policies that combine the results into an aggregated score, it's also very transparent, right? So it runs as a part of your CI pipeline and developers can look at it like, hey, my score is, I don't know, nine out of 10 or four out of 10. And the threshold is seven, anything below a seven, you're not going to be able to build, you're not going to be able to release to production. So what is it that needs to be done to get my score above a seven or above an eight? And this goes back to our earlier point of security folks focusing on very high value, high leverage work of defining what policies are appropriate for the organization and leave the rest of the manual work to automation where the automation system aggregates the results of those policies, combines them into a single actionable score, and then your build pipeline or delivery pipeline just makes a decision based on that piece. Yeah, and what's nice is because you're using your CI-CD pipeline and you're building your policy as code, this code can reside within your repo. It's maybe one or two additional files. You know, it's not gonna it's not gonna kill the world in storage. But the second thing is now that now this policy becomes auditable by anyone. You can see if this policy has been changed, if those changes are accepted or not. And you could even now have automated alerting based on this policy being changed. So, you know, we have the example, like you said, if your score is below a seven. So maybe I just want to alert if someone goes and change my average score, that that should now be an alert. Why is the new average score been lowered down to four? 
Right. As right. In, you know, who made this change? Whereas something like the repo owner or the project owner might not necessarily need an alert because during a project's lifecycle, it may have different owners. People may definitely still leave and join for the org, you know. So you, you've got this governance that you can also go and say articulately what you want to have alerting on. Right. Yeah, and I'm I'm a big fan of making things simple. A few years ago, I had given a talk at one of the security conferences about how Apple Watch is so amazing. So a lot of people who are in, into fitness, they use Apple Watch or Fitbit or some sort of tracker, right? And being able to see those three rings on the Apple iWatch that tells you, have you met your daily goal or not? Are you under your goal? Are you above your goal? That is such an easy, simple way to set a goal for yourself, make sure you're meeting that goal or exceeding that goal and be aware of the risks that you might be introducing. I think that's exactly what Security Scorecard does, which is it removes a lot of this complexity about security because... I mean, let's be real. Developers don't have the time to learn and understand nine or 10 different security tools. They want security to be much more simple, much more actionable. So something like this Google scorecard makes it very easy to understand, very easy and deterministic that it's not nebulous anymore. If this, then that, and maybe this, maybe that. It's none of those discussions. It's very obvious. Here's a binary decision. You either do it or you don't do it. And you either you're allowed to deploy or you're not allowed to deploy. Yeah, and another one of the big benefits that, that that comes out of that, each of these nine or 10 different tools, each produce a ton of alerts. So if your team is getting these alerts, you're quickly going to run into alert fatigue. You know, you, you're constantly going to be chasing alerts. And again, that's not a scalable solution. By introducing this policy-driven system, you've got one system, all of your data is aggregated into one system, and you globalizing your alerts to only be generated through one system, thereby there's one source, there's one pane of glass, there's one set of alerts to look at. And that's really the biggest benefit that I can see coming out of a solution like this, where you really want to have just the highlights. You know, this repo didn't cut it. Here's things you can do to make your repo, make this project, you know, you didn't have a SAS scan or your SAS scan had these findings along with your uh, SCA had these findings and this brought your score down to a six. So, you know, these very quick fixes then enables the team to very quickly turn around and say, hey, these are the two, three things that we need to fix. And that will move our score from a six to an eight. Yeah, you know, I can almost see sort of a, a remediation campaign style operation, right? So typically a lot of security teams focus on certain types of bugs or certain classes of bugs and work with the engineering organization on, hey, let's resolve these types of things in the next quarter, in the next six months or whatever. So you can modify your scores and policies to reflect what the organizational priorities are. And that just drives action across the engineering organization. Yeah, definitely. And another one thing that I've continuously seen is, you know, you might, uh, again, for your smaller teams and your younger, let's call it startup, hyper-growth level companies, they might not have a mature security posture today. 
you know, they're only doing maybe the scanning. So as they introduce a new tool, of course, there's going to be findings. Of course, there's going to be a lot of risk added to your risk card. This is expected. But again, from a security point of view, how do we turn this around and turn it into an enabler? You know, we don't want to grind engineering to a halt by, hey, these these new 5,000 risks that you never knew about, but we just added this tool that now tells you about them. Like This is not the intent. Right. The intent is let's scan for a new baseline, let's reset the baseline. And because this is now a policy-driven architecture, we can manage the policy effectively and still work on enabling the engineering teams to do what they do best. One of the examples that I like to compare this with is if you've ever heard of Amazon interview, they have a bar raiser program. And the bar raiser is supposed to, in that interview, see how you as an engineer meets or raises the bar or meets or raises the existing status quo of the engineering team or of the team that you're interviewing for. And the same should now be applied for software. How is this review process that we're going through raising the bar for the repo, for the project, for the org? I love it. Raising the bar with in small increments. I love that approach. Alan, unfortunately, this is all the time we have for our recording today. I really appreciated all the insights you shared. Thank you so much for being a guest here. It's only been my pleasure and look forward to speaking to you real soon, Herschel. Fantastic. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Future of Application Security. If you've enjoyed this episode or you are new to the show, I'd love to have you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss any episode. And if you like the podcast, I'd be grateful if you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you for listening.